0: Welcome to Israel from the inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to DanielGordis.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the privilege of sitting today with Rabbi Seth Farber. Rabbi Farber is really one of the most important Orthodox halachic activists in Israel, trying to create a different kind of religious experience for people through all stages of life, Um, conversion, marriage, burial, and so forth. He and his wife are the parents of five children, three of whom are now in the army, one of whom is in a machina, on their way to the army. Uh, They made Aliyah in 1995, I believe it was. Uh, Rabbi Farber has a B.A. from NYU. He has smicha, rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University and a Ph.D. from Hebrew University in history, Uh, but is really now mostly involved in the world of activism. He's also a congregational pulpit rabbi in the city of Ra'anana. He does a tremendous amount. He and his wife are a power couple. You may know that his wife, Michelle Farber, uh, has what may very well be the largest Daf Yomi daily studying of the Talmud program anywhere in the world. She does one a day in English, one a day in Hebrew. It's an incredible accomplishment. So between the two of them, they are really shaking up the Jewish world in the best possible sense of that word. I wanted to meet with Rabbi Farber and talk to him now because uh, Israel's under a dark cloud. There are people who are a little bit worried, there are people who are panicked, there's people in all different kinds of places, but the whole period in which the state of Israel finds itself now really raises the question of what's the direction of Judaism in the Jewish state? Are we looking at a world in which Judaism in the Jewish state is going to become a more radicalized version? Is there a possibility for some sort of moderated version of serious, committed, perhaps even halachic Judaism for some uh, in the Jewish state? So we're going to come back to that issue. That's what I would call the huge elephant in the room. But we want to start really by, first of all, thanking Rabbi Farber for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you. And um, tell us a little bit about how your incredible history of activism began, how you founded E-Team in 2002, uh, what it does, and then we'll get to the more specific things, specifically of conversion, and then even more specifically, where Israel finds itself Jewishly now.
1: Okay, so first of all, thanks so much for hosting me. Um, I grew up in Riverdale, New York. I'm the child of uh, immigrants from Europe, both of whom ran from the Nazis, and uh, some, you know, really the youngest child of that generation. And um, grew up in a religious Zionist household, really under the influence of uh, some interesting thinkers like Yitz Greenberg, who you know we were our families were very close. He also and, lived in Riverdale, right? Also lived in Riverdale, and you know all of our all of his kids and us were best friends and continue to be best friends. Uh, but not just uh, in his particular personal milieu, but in the context of a community that was very much oriented towards uh, modern orthodoxy, religious Zionism. Our family spent a lot of time here in Israel uh, from you know, the early 70s. And uh, my parents were involved in the federation movement in the States, very involved in the UJF Federation of New York, and uh, really grew up with this sense that we could accomplish a lot and that the Jewish people were in a transitional moment of which the state of Israel will play a very, very central role in the future of the Jewish people. And that this, uh, what Yitz used to call the new era of Jewish history, didn't just involve uh, the renewing of a covenant uh, beginning with the shattering of it in the Holocaust, but also the building of a covenant that would begin with the creation of the State of Israel and its development through the Six-Day War and through, you know, seminal moments in the history of the Jewish people, be it 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, 76 and Entebbe, uh and something that I was much more involved in personally, which was the Soviet Jewry movement. We were brought up thinking we could change the world, and we should, and in particular change the Jewish world. So... Uh, Propelling myself forward, I spent uh, time getting you know my academic career, career going and stuff like that. But my real passion was forever the Jewish people. So in 1995, I basically packed my bags from a pretty uh, clear career path in America, where I was you know on the rabbinic educational path, uh, having received my ordination from Yeshiva University, and uh, moved to Israel, kind of to begin again. Uh, I went back to school here, but I was looking always for opportunities for where I could do something in the, for the Jewish people. And in the beginning of the 2000s, there was a lot of discussion about what Jewish life was going to look like in Israel. There were some initial studies that had come out uh, from the Avichai Foundation and the Guten Center that talked about the disenfranchisement that Jewish Israelis felt towards Jewish life. And yet at the same time, the real strong sense that people wanted to have a connection to Jewish tradition. And those uh, catalyzed me to start thinking creatively about what could I do, uh, not just for Jews in Israel, but for Jews around the world that would make Jewish tradition something that wasn't a moment of disenfranchisement, but rather a moment of connection and uh, empowerment and enolment. Uh Starting in 2002, I put together a small team and put together some funding that uh, began to think about this. And so we began to do some uh, surveys here in Israel, and slowly we began what has morphed into a team, but we began an, uh, an organization that basically would enable people to get information about Jewish life, both people from overseas who wanted to experience Jewish life here in Israel, and Jewish Israelis. I like to say that... Like you what have kind thought... of information would they be getting? So, Israel has a very interesting religious establishment. Unlike uh, many Western countries here, there is definite connection between, uh, you know, church and state, or synagogue and state, if you will. And people who want to get married, or buried, or divorced... Uh, jewishly have to do it through government institutions so people felt very much uh, you know that getting married here was like getting a passport or getting a driver's license
0: they have to go through the government that's an ottoman rule originally yes you know
1: it's something we actually just celebrated a year and a half ago the hundredth anniversary of the uh turkish law that forces you to get married here through the religious establishment whether you're jewish muslim christian doesn't matter jews can only marry jews through the rabbinate. muslims can only marry muslims through the sharia courts and Christians, etc. In other words, that's the way it works in this country. So I, I, I say it tongue-in-cheek because I, I, I don't mean to make light of this at all. Quite the opposite. I, this is one of the biggest concerns on my mind. But the intermarriage rate in Israel is zero because legally you cannot get intermarried in Israel Whereas Jews can only marry Jews. But what it means to be a Jew in Israel, that's a whole different question because here the the Turkish law, the Ottoman law that we inherited through the Brits and now is part of Israel, that essentially empowers the rabbinate, which is fundamentally ultra-Orthodox, to determine who is a Jew that actually can get married in Israel. In 2004, I was part of a piece of legislation that enabled two people who aren't Jewish, but aren't part of another religion, to be able to get married here outside of all this religious system. But in the end, in order to prove that you're not Jewish, in order not Jewish enough to get married, you have to go to the rabbinical courts to prove that you're not Jewish, something that's not so easy to do. Either way, so we began spinning this idea of providing people with information. At that point... Still, information was power. Today, information is, we're in the over-information age, and it's hard to imagine that then there were no websites and there was no information, etc. cetera. And we began disseminating information about what does it take to get married here. We felt very strongly that people who had more information would feel empowered, they would feel connected, they would feel uh, re-enfranchised, if you can say such a thing, to, towards Jewish life. That's how we began. But slowly, over the first few years of the organization, we began to realize that we needed to change things here systemically, not just on the individual level, and because of that, we began. We opened up a legal center in 2009, and that ended up spawning a whole different set of programs here at Eteam. And
0: so, before we get to those, what, if you wanted to say, what was the fundamental systemic mm-hmm. change that you realized you had to make?
1: We had to make the religious establishment in Israel more respectful and more responsive to the Jewish needs of the Jewish people. Unfortunately, the religious leadership in this country has grown up uh, and developed in uh, in a vacuum with a very, very small window towards general Jewish life and the sensitivities they have to Jewish peoplehood and to the Jewish people and to their needs, their Jewish needs, uh, is is very, the window they have is very small, their sensitivity is very, very uh, dulled. And because of that, we're paying an enormous price in Israel today and in the Jewish world today for the myopic, the myopism of the, of, the, of the religious establishment in Israel. So our goal was to transform that, to make Israel uh, a society and the religious establishment in particular a place that's respectful and responsive. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes people want to live Jewish lives in a way that the religious, the halachic establishment, the religious establishment in Israel can't allow it. But to be respectful, to be responsive, to say, no, but we still love you. No, but we still embrace you. Or embrace you first before we say no. That didn't exist here. And over the course of time, uh, by both using the carrot and the stick, sometimes going to court, and we've gone to court, I think I was the first Orthodox rabbi to sue the chief rabbi in the Israeli Supreme Court. And I'm not proud of it, but it has happened more than 10 times at this point. I'm what have not proud sued of about? It. What kinds of things have you sued we've about? We've sued about the way uh, conversions are recognized in this country. We've sued about... Uh, Which rabbis in America can write letters of Jewishness that are satisfactory to the rabbinate? In that particular case, we sued just so they should be transparent about tell us which rabbis are okay and which ones aren't. We might disagree with you, but before we even do that, we have to just know, you know, have you blacklisted rabbis? And eventually, they published, they demonstrated that they actually held a blacklist of rabbis in America who couldn't write letters. And we got them to change that, including Orthodox rabbis, including Orthodox rabbis. Yes, we've sued them about the way uh, ritual baths, mikvahs work in this country. You have to remember, in this country, this is not a shtetl anymore. In this country, uh, mikvahs are run by the government. More than half a million women use the mikvahs every year in this country. Uh, There's a 300 million shekel line item for mikvahs in this country. And because of that, if it's a public service, they should be run, not like a shtetl. It should be run like a a sovereign state. Uh, We've sued about uh, proving Jewishness by virtue of using DNA testing. We don't think that's an appropriate way of proving your Jewishness by by DNA testing. That's probably for another discussion, but... uh, not for today, in the area of my heritage, it's a, that sounds like, a, oh, cool, let's do that. But it's not a healthy way to run Jewish life in this country. And uh, a host of other issues as well, on burial issues as well, we've sued the state. But again, the reason I don't like lawsuits, even though we have a very robust legal department here, probably bigger than any other nonprofit that works in this space, um, we don't like it because it's very binary. And we don't think that the way, in the end, Jewish life should be determined should be by uh, the court saying yes or the court saying no. These are issues that determine what Jewish life is going to look like for the next thousand years, hopefully, um, notwithstanding what you recently wrote about 75 years, uh, <laughs> uh, Danny. But uh, notwithstanding that, uh, I believe this country, you know, uh, the way I like to say it, uh, maybe this is a takeaway from our whole discussion for today, Danny. Um, a lot of people say that Israel is about to become 75 years old. But the way I look at it is Israel is 75 years young. And we're just beginning a discussion, a serious discussion about what Jewish life is going to look like in this country, what Jewish life is going to look like for the Jewish people, both here and in the diaspora. I'm not a diaspora denier. I believe that Judaism will last overseas for many, many years. Way it will way outlast me. And because of that, I think we're we're now beginning to address some of the real fundamental issues about uh, what Jewish life and the way we want Jewish life to look like for the coming, uh, you know, millennia. And because of that, some of the issues that Etim is dealing with are really. The front and center on that discussion.
0: So I was going to come back to this towards the end of the conversation, but let's just pick it up a little bit now because you mentioned it. You say we're beginning to have a conversation about what Judaism should look like in the Jewish state. Who's the we? You're having the conversation. Your 20-something colleagues here at the team are having the conversation. My friends and colleagues and I are having the conversation. Is the state of Israel engaged in a conversation about what Judaism and the Jewish state should look like?
1: i like to talk about the three denominations in Judaism. The three denominations are not Orthodox, Reform, and Conservative. The three denominations are the people who are stuck in the past, and they don't think anything's changed with the creation of Israel. They're people who are stuck in the future. All they care about is what's going to happen, and they don't want to kind of deny anything that happened in the last 2,000 years. For many of them, the last 2,000 years is kind of just a a bump, you know, a blip in the the history of the Jewish people, and let's pick up where we were 2,000 years ago, where we have a commonwealth. And then there's a third group that says... Judaism, that I think, by the way, Rabbi Cook who was actually the head of this, who talked about the evolving sense of morality within the Jewish people and the world, right? In other words, I think that this third denomination is the one that, I mean, they're not ambivalent and, or, or, or ignorant. They're people who want to build the future based on the past. And I think that conversation doesn't happen in all circles, but I think it's happening. I think it's happening in small circles, and I think it's in ever-widening circles. And actually, the fundamentalism that has reared its ugly head, in my humble opinion, you know, in uh, in this election cycle, I think that only illustrates that there's there's something percolating under the you know under the surface that that people are interested in and people are you know talking about. So sometimes you see it in its positive manifestations, and again, because it's a conversation or a dialogue, sometimes you see it in its negative manifestations. But I think that actually indicates that. Something's going on here about the way Jewish life is going to is going to uh, work itself out.
0: Is that happening in secular Ashkenazi Tel Aviv?
1: So it's begun happening. You know, the fact that we can talk and just, you know, have roll off our tongue, the fact that there's a number of secular yeshivas and we take that for granted where twenty years ago, if you had said the word secular yeshiva, people would say, What are you talking about? Right. That indicates that something's going on. And these are processes in my view, not Things that happen in one moment, and because of that, you know, to, or to, Yom
0: Kippur davening outside in a park where there's people of exactly. all walks. Of in
1: Dizengoff Center, if there's Yom Kippur, if there's the Yom Kippur service, or there's a Kabbalat Shabbat on the beaches of Tel Aviv, and there is, right? Which isn't Orthodox, but there's also an Orthodox one. You know, it's that means that something's going on here that's bigger than you know what's going to take place in the coming weeks or months or even years of this particular government. So there's something going on here, and I think people care about it deeply. Israel is a country where Jews deeply care about, you know, their Jewishness. I meet this all the time. Uh, We'll talk about Yeruk Kalachan in a few minutes, but I I just think about yesterday. Yesterday I sat on a rabbinical court as a judge, and we converted five children of Israelis. And uh, these families, uh, the the, the parents wouldn't call themselves Orthodox by any means.
0: These are probably people from the former Soviet Union? Yes, so
1: in this particular case, we were dealing with cases of uh, surrogacy. They weren't at least uh, two of the three families were not uh, former Soviet Union, you know, emigrants of the former Soviet Union. But these are people who grew up in Israel. They have very strong Jewish identities. And when you ask them, why is it important for your children to convert Orthodox if, you don't, if you're not practicing Orthodox or you're not fully practicing Orthodox? And you get answers like, this is not going to end with me. It is just not. This means way too much for me. It's true, I might go to work on Shabbat every once in a while. Or it's true, I might watch a wall game on Shabbat. But this is not going to end with me. My kids, in this case, surrogacy kids, right? So who aren't halachically Jewish yet, right? they say, you know, damn it, this is, they're, going to be, they're going to be Jewish no matter what happens. And uh, we'll talk more about it how that happens. But I, I get this sense from people who are not observant or orthodox or wouldn't call themselves orthodox. Uh, and again, that has a very fluid definition today, right? Those definitions are, are, are simply not relevant anymore, right? One family yesterday said to me, we're not orthodox. Yes, I put on till every day. Yes, on Friday night, we light candles, we make kiddush, and we try not to travel on Shabbat. But Orthodox, I'm not. Right. Right? The fact that someone can say that indicates that there's something going on here, that Orthodoxy has gotten a bad rap. I was an Orthodox rabbi, I say that, but it's not just that. I understand why Orthodox has gotten a bad rap. But there's a conversation going on here, but it's underneath the, uh, you know, mitachat la Right. Underneath, uh, underneath the surface surface right now. Right. It needs, uh, it needs to be cultivated, and that's one of the things we're doing at Etim.
0: So you're an optimist about the Jewish conversation in the Jewish state.
1: Look, there's reason to be pessimistic, but I don't think we need to be fatalistic. And I think there's a lot of reasons to be, you know, to look positively and to understand that these are growing pains.
0: Is it possible that the results of this election and the people that, I mean, you and I are having this conversation as the government is about to become a government, um, possible that the results of this election will spur greater conversation among the people who are not in that group and say, we really want to take this conversation back ourselves?
1: Look, I'm hopeful that that will happen. And some of the programs we're developing at E-Team now are trying to stimulate that conversation in one one way or another. One of the things I always say about E-Team is that if we're not successful in our bigger goal, it's going to be because we weren't able to mobilize the so-called secular of Israel, which I don't really think exists, but the You know, 70% of Jewish Israelis who don't identify as Orthodox, but also don't identify as anti-Orthodox, right? They just identify as, you know, Jews, Jews, right? If we're not able to mobilize them. I'm hoping that, uh, you know, in some twisted way, uh, this will actually be a call to action for them. And again, some of the programs we're doing are trying to mobilize them now to speak up, to take greater responsibility and ownership. Not only responsibility for their Judaism, but ownership of their Judaism, and so, we'll, we'll come like back
0: to the that in a second, but what are some of these programs that you're doing to mobilize the typical, again, will be sort of unfair, but the typical Ashkenazi Tel Aviv, quote unquote, secular mm-hmm. Jew? What right. is the Team doing to get them to join the fray? So,
1: first of all, we're very anxious if they uh, encounter uh, challenges in the religious establishment, they should report on them. We're, we're putting out a call, basically, for people to reach out. We have a call center here that gets about 4,000 calls a year here at Eteam. Team. From people who are stuck in the religious establishment we want we want to increase that we want to know more we want people to come along and say they didn't let me get buried get married get divorced get converted we want to, we want to know why and we want to expose that because we really feel like the best uh, if I can quote someone who I'm sure you've quoted in the past also the best disinfectant is really sunlight and I think that's one of the things we're trying to do we're trying to to call people to put a spotlight on areas where the religious establishment is is defective or destructive even and we want them we want to put a spotlight on that so we're putting out a call in all sorts of creative you know pr ways for people to start taking responsibility if someone says no to you and they shouldn't be saying no to you we want to know about it we want to publicize it we want people to we want to put a spotlight on it and we want to change just before we began this conversation uh, i got a call from the head of the largest religious council in israel right He's calling me because he just got a letter from one of our lawyers calling him to task about something. And he's calling me personally because obviously it's shaken him up seriously. In other words, when he gets a letter from one of our E-team's lawyers, he knows we mean business. And he's calling to kind of like, you know, take me down a little and explain to me why they're doing what it is that they're doing. But that's the kind of thing we want to see more of. We want people, not just, it's not just the professionals, but the the average, the rank and file. They need to take greater responsibility. Look, they did it about cottage cheese in the 2010s. They should be doing it about Jewish life now. So right. we need to mobilize that.
0: So we want to have the same cottage streets revolution or the same housing price revolution, which brought hundreds of thousands of Israelis out into the streets right. to now have a conversation about Judaism, democracy, Western values, the values of the individual rule of law and all of that.
1: I don't, I don't know if we'll bring them out to the streets. I think it's hard to do. But when you ask, and every study shows this, and you ask people what they care about the most, more than housing prices, more than the price of cottage cheese and the cost of living, they care about the Jewish identity of the Jewish state. Again, immediately they don't necessarily care about that. But you ask them, you know, when you dig, when you drill down, that's their values. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're here about. So, you know, that's our story.
0: So let's get to one particular part of the story. Your team does a lot of different kinds of things. But one of the issues of Jewish life that is most in the press, and I think that is of most uh, interest and perhaps concern, especially to the English-speaking world, some of whom are in Israel but many of whom are abroad, is the whole issue of conversion. And so tell us a little bit about what Etim does about conversion and how it's trying to create a different process and experience for conversion from what happens typically in the rabbinate and what's problematic about the rabbinate experience.
1: Mm -hmm. So conversion in Israel is fundamentally different than conversion uh, overseas. And that's for one reason, because people here who convert, who convert again in a government authority for the most part, uh, are here as citizens already. They're already Jews. They see themselves as Jewish. They made Aliyah as Jews. And they get here and they find out, oh, you're not Jewish enough for the rabbinate. Uh, That can be because of of a gap between the law of return that enables anybody to come on Aliyah with one Jewish grandparent. And it can be because they haven't satisfactorily to the satisfaction of the rabbinate proved their Jewishness, which you have to do before you come and get married. But they're fundamentally living here in a Jewish milieu, right? Remember, the day of rest here is Shabbat, right? Uh, you know, ninety plus percent of his Jewish Israelis say it's important or very important for them to have a seder, right? Uh, a little less than that, light Hanukkah candles. A hundred percent of kids in this country dress up on Purim, right? You can't not dress up on Purim because that's what they do in the public school. Everybody does that, right? No, it's so the. hundred percent of
0: Jewish kids in this country have some Jewish content in their schools, right?
1: Every everyone does, right? Exactly. There's bar and bat mitzvah programs in every. You know, in every public school in this country, every Jewish public school, in and they this all country. learn a little bit of Bible. Right, they all they, learn not a little, little bit. bit of... Right. Well, how much, you know, would they be able to, you know, pass the Bible exam? I don't know, but they, they, you know, they're but exposed. They're, they're exposed, and they're right, and they're involved. And the language is a language of, you know, of tradition. So that means that the and the dangers are different, right? The dangers of marrying out are very, very different than the dangers in the states, and that creates a whole different milieu in particular from a demographic perspective in this country we're talking about a little under 500,000 people who made Aliyah as jews but aren't recognized they're listed in the population registry as no religion because they made Aliyah because one of their dad you know their dad or their one of their grandparents is jewish but not their mom and for that reason the rabbinate won't recognize their jewishness this is a demographic problem my son you mentioned my my children before so one of my sons is a commander an officer in, uh, you know, in a fighting unit in this country, he has thirty soldiers under his command, and statistically speaking, two or three of them are not halachically Jewish, right? Practically speaking, it's two, but in other words, it could be between two and three that aren't halachically Jewish. These guys are fighting; they're you know risking their lives every day
0: for the Jewish state. For the Jewish
1: state, and yet, if they come to get married now, they're being told, "Hey, you're not Jewish enough." Now, over the course of time, we've played different roles at the beginning, and when we founded E-Team, so. I wrote a manual about how to convert. We published it together with Tzipi Livni, who was then the minister of, you know, she, she took it under her wing, and she was the minister of uh, immigration and absorption. In the early 2010s, uh, a little early in that, I should just say as a background, the army has a conversion program to help some of these soldiers through. But soldiers, starting in 2009, 2010, started calling the team and saying, we went through the conversion program, which was signed off by the chief rabbi of Israel, but local rabbinates weren't willing to get the, to marry these couples anyway. Even though they had converted with the signature of the chief rabbis, we actually sued the rabbinate. This sounds like a little strange. On behalf of Maxim and Alina Sardakov, they were a couple that came in Aliyah in 1993. They went to public school number three in Ashkelon. They were a couple by the time they were 16. When they got to the army, Alina realized that her you know, she knew before, but she found out that she was never going to be able to get married because her mom isn't Jewish. Maxim's dad isn't Jewish. Alina went through the army conversion program. She adopted a traditional lifestyle. They fought in the Second Lebanon War when Maxim, uh, Maxim and Alina and I went on television at their wedding. Channel 2 interviewed us. And uh, Maxim said, you know, when they dropped me on the other side of the Litani River, you know, in Lebanon, he said, there, no one then questioned my girlfriend's conversion. But when we came to get married in Ashkelon, they were told no they couldn't get married because the local rabbi, Rabbi Bloyd, didn't accept their conversion. And and we actually sued, on behalf of Maxime and another 39 converts who had converted in the army, we sued the rabbinate to recognize the rabbinate's own conversions. Only Kafka could make that up. Right? right? You sue someone to recognize their own conversions, and eventually we won. Over the course of time, though, we realized that the way the army was converting and the way, in fact, the civil authority was converting was not doing the job. They were converting 1,000, maybe 2,000 people a year when, forget about natural growth, immigration growth was much more than that. At the time, it was, you know, in 2011, it was 200,000 people in this country. Now it's 500,000 people in this country. And we realized we had to do something. And we tried to change the law and that's had had its own political machinations. In 2015, I met with... uh, very very prominent leader of the religious zionist community certainly no one would question his liberal tendencies by any by any means and i using some of his halachic writings i pitched him on the idea of basically creating a rabbinical court that would not work with the rabbinate, but compete with him the idea was like many things in this country if you create facts on the ground then sometimes people give you you know more notice and uh after a number of efforts to change the law, he ultimately, this rabbi, his name is Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich, of blessed memory, he's since passed, but uh, at the time, he agreed to take this on himself, and we sat on a rabbinical court in the end of 2015, where he said it was very important for him to be the first one to convert, to perform the conversions, and since then, that was the launching of the team program Giorka Halakha.
0: Which means which conversion went, according to halacha.
1: According to halacha. Now, this is an orthodox program. The people who staffed the program, we began with... Uh, you know, one Orthodox meeting, we got six rabbis to agree to support it now we have 70 Orthodox rabbis inclu- including rabbis who are members of the rabbinate like myself I'm a member of the Israeli rabbinate I have a license to perform weddings and uh, except for one time when we sued the rabbinate they took away my license I've been able to perform <laughs> weddings uh, for the last uh, 20 years or so um, but we use city you know, rabbis who are employed by the state including municipal rabbis uh, to perform these conversions. So no one can question their orthodox bona fides of the rabbis who perform these conversions, but the rabbinate doesn't accept our conversions. They have their own uh, myopic view of what conversion should be. It's only their 30 rabbis who can perform conversions and no one else. In the last five years or so, we've taken on, as I mentioned before, I sit on these rabbinical courts as well, we've taken on particularly the issue of conversion of children. And... Um, we, team that is, sued the state of Israel to recognize our conversions. And today, uh, the courts have recognized, as of today, the courts have recognized our conversions as well. Meaning, uh, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I'll say it, you know, on the record, which is that there's probably five or six people in the world who can determine who is a Jew in Israel. And the Supreme Court of Israel said that Seth Farber is one of them, which I say with a lot of, you know, humility and as a joke, but it's true. But I don't I don't say it because I'm proud of it. I'm saying it because it's, We shouldn't be doing this, right? It shouldn't be like this. The chief rabbi once said to me, he said, don't you think it's absurd that you can decide who is a Jew in the state of Israel? You have a startup and you can decide who is a Jew. And I said, what I really wanted to say was if you were doing your job right, then I wouldn't be doing this. And the truth is, ultimately our goal is to create facts on the ground so that uh, the religious establishment in Israel will adopt our system, our method. Today, after five years, we're doing something like 20% of all the conversions in Israel.
0: And when you say your method, how is your method of conversion different from the chief rabbi's method?
1: So, there's three differentiating factors. One is a judgment call. I think we're more user-friendly. I think we run kind of a more personalized system. Every person who turns to us, and we've had more than 20,000 people turn to us. We haven't converted them all. We've converted a couple, you know, a few thousand. But, but we've, we, every person gets assigned a professional who was with them throughout the entire process. They get a phone number and that person is with them from the moment they call, their initial meetings, their coursework, who they do with other people, and ultimately at the Beit So that's one differentiating factor. The second differentiating factor is a uh, is very nuanced Orthodox area, and that is the issue of what does it mean to accept mitzvot? We do not, uh, we insist, I should say, we insist, we insist on the Kabbalat or mitzvot as part of the conversion process. That means accepting upon oneself the yoke of the commandments. But the level of detail that we drill down to is much more in line with what traditional sources say you're supposed to do. In the famous Talmudic passage about Hillel and Shammai, it talks about letting the person know some of the commandments and making sure that they're very, very committed to uh, Jewish destiny and the Jewish future. So they are required to study and they are required to understand and observe the commandments. But we don't drill down. When you talk about some of the deficiencies of the rabbinate, we get reports here all the time at a team of people who were asked questions, you know, absurd questions. I can give you examples. You know, are you allowed to use the uh, water that comes out of an air conditioner? You know, if it comes out on Shabbat, are you allowed to drink that water on Shabbat? Right? That's an absurd question that, you know, very few halakhic scholars would know the answer to. It relates to questions of, you know, things that are created on Shabbat. It maybe relates to the question of how we can create ice on Shabbat. Again, I don't want to go into the halachic nuance, of, but it's not something we would expect the convert to know. Those are not the kind of questions. Or what's the bracha on strawberries? We don't ask that kind of question. Or what's the bracha on sugar? Right, That's a particularly uh, uh, question that's close to my heart because because I, I come, uh, I should, you know, play this card on this podcast, Danny, eh, that I come from a very, very prominent rabbinic family. I don't know if you know this, but yeah. my... My great my grandfather was named Moshe, he was named after his great great-grand, grandfather Moshe Sofer, who was kind of the founder of ultra orthodoxy, the Khatam Sofer. In our family tradition, the Khatam Sofer never ate sugar because he didn't know what the bracha to say on sugar was. So that's the kind of question you'd get in a rabbinic, you know, in a state rabbinical court. You won't get that kind of question in our in our courts. The third differentiating factor, which is I think the main one, is our attitude towards the conversion of, of children. Uh, the halachics of it are very, very interesting. But essentially, children under bar bat mitzvah do not need to accept upon themselves the commandments in order to convert. That basically is the responsibility of the rabbinical court itself to determine this is in the best interest of the child. So when a family comes to us, primarily the, the standard case would be an immigrant family where the dad is Jewish, the mom is not halachically Jewish, even though she has very strong Jewish identity. They came in aliyah from the former Soviet Union or more and more from the States or from... Uh, from uh, South America or even from France and they say we weren't able to get married in the rabbinate or maybe we tried to convert in the rabbinate but it didn't work for us for whatever reason because they asked us questions about the bracha and sugar. So instead we gave up we got married in Cyprus and now we're coming to you because we have two or three children and we want to convert those children and they're a very traditional family they make kiddush on Friday night they light candles they have a Shabbat meal all the holidays are holidays and we're able to convert the children, even if the mom is has a question hanging over it about Jew or Judaism. We're willing, we're, we want to. We want to encourage this family for the future of the state of Israel. And that's when I come back. to... And the
0: chief rabbi won't convert. And, and the
1: chief chi- rabbi has a policy: they will not convert children unless the child is in a religious school, unless the family is 100 percent observant, which is and not halachic. There's no both halachhi, are and, married. And both parents are halachically married. And that. Which would no also, precedent. by the way,
0: rule out homosexual yes, families. Yes,
1: that also rules out automatically homosexual families. What's important to me to say is this has no, the rabbinate's and its policies have no, have no precedent, not in normative halakha, and also not in halakha that was practiced even here in the State of Israel up to 30 years ago. You know, you look at the chief rabbis, uh, Rabbi Unterman or Rabbi Gorin or Rabbi Rabbi Yosef, none of them had these policies. And you go back a generation before, Rabbi Chaim Bozher-Grasinski... Right, who was writing a poem? He made it very, very clear that conversion. Right, Rav Herzog even right, but Rav Chaim Moser, who let, no one could claim that he was a modern Orthodox rabbi by any or a Zionist rabbi in any sense of the world, and his it's very, very clear that he accepted conversions that were taking place in Europe, even though the families were not 100 percent observant, and certainly, certainly, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein about children who were not you know coming from observant families. All this was normative until the last 15, 20 years.
0: What changed? People are listening to this. And they're now understanding, okay, so you have a, a conversion process that is more or less parallel to the chief rabbi's process. It's completely halachic. It's what people outside would call an orthodox halakhic conversion process. It's much more user friendly. Uh, it allows for greater flexibility within the parameters of halacha. And you're saying that there were, there were lots of Israeli rabbis and maybe the Israeli norm until a couple decades ago in which this would not have been so unusual. Now people have got to be asking themselves, what changed? How did it come to be that the chief rabbinate ended up being ultra orthodox, which if you want to put a bit of an edge on it, the chief rabbinate might therefore not be Zionist. Uh, the children of the chief rabbis typically don't go to the army. So you have a kind of a crazy world here in which the very best of the Zionist, religious Zionist movement is now not reflected in the world of the rabbinate of the Jewish state. How did this change?
1: So first I want to comment about whether they're Zionist or not. By virtue of the fact they're not willing to address the conversion issue frontally, in my humble opinion, that makes them not Zionist. Because I think conversion in this country today, and conversion, by the way, overseas as well, given the huge... Intermarriage rates. I think that's a Zionist project. I think you are failing the Zionist dream if you don't address where the Jewish people are at today. So by definition, they're not Zionist, whether they wear a black hat or a crocheted kippah or you know sing on Yom Mode. I don't think they're part of the Zionist project at all. I think our conversion court is fundamentally a Zionist, a Zionist project as much as it is a religious project. What happened is a combination of uh, a few factors. The first one is that the religious Zionist community uh, chose, to some extent, to abandon uh, their commitment to Jewish life and religious institutions in Israel. Uh, and here I'm going to use a political phrase that I don't like using so much, but they they put their eggs in the basket of what, what's, what, what is generally called, I don't like this phrase, the settler movement. In other words, they so you're talking about the Gusha Munim period, right? The Gush right? period basically represents a, a watershed moment for the religious Zionists abandoning the chief rabbinate and saying, This isn't so important to us, or as important as the greater Israel is. And I'm not trying to deny, yes, no, greater Israel. I'm just saying that uh, that was one, one factor. And so, so nature abhors a vacuum in the ultra Orthodox. Right, exactly. The second thing was that the ultra Orthodox, beginning in 1988, began to realize that they could uh, wield significant power, and this was a natural place for them to begin. Right? They, they expanded way beyond that, and you can see in the in the constellation of today's government where the ultra orthodox are very interested in you know the ministry of interior and uh, and the ministry you know and certainly you know part of the uh, government committees that relate to uh, finances etc but correct they filled a vacuum uh, in that area so i think it was both an abandonment of you know where the religious Zionist community was the, the previous leadership the previous generation of leadership of you know borg and swolenhamer etc those people who were very very committed to having the religious uh, dimensions of the state of Israel reflect part of the Zionist narrative, right? What I described before, the people who want to build the future based on the past to people who just want to live in the past, right? So they don't, they, they simply deny. And again, the past they're living in is not, I think it's actually a made up past.
0: Right, it's not a real. Right, thing, it's
1: right. not a real past. When they say we're keeping, you know, conversion standards as they were for 2,000 years, that's just a lie, <laughs> right? It's just an outright lie. And what's worse is they know it. They know it, that they're they're lying. They know that it's not. Okay, and by the way, I'm building on that. I'm building on the fact that they know ultimately it's a lie. And I'll give you an example of it. Uh, The chief rabbis have both gotten on record. They attack us all the time publicly, our conversion program. You know, these people aren't Jewish, etc. So I once said to one of the chief rabbis, I said, tell me something. If one of our converts from Yitim Gyork Lacha were to walk into your house on a Friday night and flip on a light, would you stay in the room or would you walk out of the room? Because halachically speaking, you can't stay in the room. room. If a Jew does, you know, flips on a light for you, you you can't stay in the room. So I sort of gave him pause. (laughs) Obviously, they recognize our converts are Jewish, and so when they get up and say publicly, or in their Saturday night sermons, they get up and say these people are all whatever, and they use all sorts of evil words about us. I, I I understand that we're a thorn in their side because they know we're doing something halachic, and they know we're doing something that's that's totally legitimate, and we're not for political concerns. Uh, they would be with us, or they should be with us. So ultimately, our, our long-term strategy is in, in terms of ETM Yeruk al is to create facts on the ground such that it will be simply impossible. Look, when I, you know, whether it's 5,000 converts or 10,000 converts or 20,000 converts, I can't say yet. And again, we'll need the political you know, constellation to be in place, but I think we'll, there'll be opportunities in the future. And because of that, I'm optimistic. In other words, we're going to continue more than we're going to do. We're going to enhance and deepen our programming now. You know, some people are saying, "Well, what can we do now?" They're throwing up their hands. I'm quite the opposite. I'm quite. We need to double down on what we're doing because we believe in it. We know it's the right thing to do, and we know ultimately for for the Zionist project and for the Jewish people project, our language and our approach is the way that has the best chance of uh, of not just survival but growth, and uh, you know, augmenting who we are as a people.
0: So you said before that you think of Israel as being 75 years young. So let's prognosticate 75 years from now. Probably neither of us are going to be around to check out whether you're right or wrong, so it's not <laughs> so very it's risky safe. here. It's pretty safe. But but let's say we're halfway there. What is the, the vision that Rabbi Seth Farber and his his colleagues and partners at E-Team, but even beyond, the, the religious world that you represent, what would you like to see religion in the Jewish state look like when Israel celebrates 150 years?
1: Mm-hmm. So first I'll tell you, uh, as an aside, I sit on a committee that just finished two years of work at at the Ministry of Religious Affairs to discuss what burial will look like starting in 2060. In other words, Israel has to do all sorts of long-term planning. And we, a team, represented the public on this committee. At a certain point, as they were kind of getting into their, just, you know, to the final, you know, rubric, I asked that someone else from my office who's in his 30s sit on the committee. I said, by the time the committee's uh, recommendations come into practice i 'm going to be a client, and <laughs> i don 't need to be there anymore, so in fact, uh, one of our that of our public policy department you know signed off on the on the document and not me um, look, I think part of it is about choice. I think what we 've learned in the rest of the world is that monopolies are bad, and the choice ends up breeding goodness and uh, it weeds out corruption and it weeds out uh, disenfranchisement so i 'd love to see. Uh, a state of Israel, particularly regarding the Jewish people, that offers people opportunities, not forces them to do something. In other words, if we if we could transpose coercion into choice, into opportunity, I think that would be kind of a big rubric. So Israel at 150, even at 100, I'd like to believe, but maybe you think I'm being too optimistic. Well, provides to people country. with channels that they can experience Jewish life in their different ways. I'd like them, you know, these to be halachic channels. But I understand that not everybody's going to want to choose the halachic way. The halachic doesn't have a solution for everybody. And if some of those are not halachic as well, I think that's a possibility. But I believe that the halacha has many many more opportunities that are being explored right right now. So I'd like to see those opportunities being provided for people and people, people having opportunities to live Jewish life the way they want. I have this great dream that all conversion around the world will take place in Israel. I have a dream that Jews would choose to get married in Israel because... They would want, even if they're not living here, they would want the state of Israel to be part of these grand moments in their Jewish lives. So I think, you know, communication and transportation and mobility, are all going to play a role in this. But I think in the end, we need to set things up here so that people have those opportunities. That they don't feel um, uh, limited by the Jewish choices in Israel, but quite the opposite. They feel empowered by them.
0: That is empowering. It's inspiring. It's actually, in an era like this, an incredibly, uh, I don't know, it, it gives new oxygen in the room to, for those of us that think about the Jewish state. So for all of, all the work that you actually do day to day in the trenches in the team uh, and no less importantly for the vision of what Jewish life here can be, and for your optimism and belief that we can make it happen, um, thank you for your time, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.